0: Good morning again. Well, if you've been here at Eshor or you've been watching some of our services online, you know that we've been going through the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. And the reason we're looking at them together is because in the original Hebrew, they're actually one book. Our English Bibles separate them, but it's one story that carries through the two books. And the series, I called it, We're Back, Now What? Because we're trying to find our story in their story. We're looking at what happened to them, and we're seeing, you know, some similar things have happened to us. Not the same, of course, because what happened to the people there, God's people, is they were in a promised land, a special relationship with God, but an empire from Babylon came, conquered their land, destroyed their capital city of Jerusalem, and the people went into exile for 70 years. But now... Now, even though they've been in exile, away from the place they worship God, now they're coming back. And as they come back into the promised land, they're asking themselves, well, now what? What do we do now that we're back home, back in the place that we worship God? And we're kind of at a, a similar place, or at least it felt so to me, and I still think it does. We're many of us back here in church, in the place we worship God and serve him, and we're asking ourselves, now what? Where do we head next? What do we do next and we're starting more and more people are coming back here in person and more of us are, are ready just to, to see what's to happen uh it, it's hard to tell exactly what's going on in the world but sometimes it, it seems things are are slowly returning to somewhat of what they used to be before i know for myself i'm i'm excited i have my first vaccine shot scheduled later this week so we're, we're getting there we're going back to where we need to be we're moving forward And so at this place we're looking at with God's people, the story has now turning to the third group of people to return, and the last group that we'll talk about in these books, around the year 445 BC. It's now 13 years after the last time we looked at these books. And this time we're talking about a Hebrew man named Nehemiah, Nehemiah, and he hears about the condition of the city of Jerusalem the capital of of Israel, of Judah, of God's people. He hears about the state the city is in and that they're in trouble. And his response, his first response to that is prayer. Now he knows the people need a strong civic leader. They need action. They need leadership. They need help. But his first response is to go to God in prayer. He's teaching us that before we lead somewhere, before we go somewhere, before we do something with God, we should pray. And as we look through this book in the coming weeks, we'll see that Nehemiah is a man of action, but his story in the Bible begins in this chapter, and when we get there in chapter 13 at the end, it begins and it ends with prayer. Prayer defined his life, particularly humble prayer before God. He lowered himself so he could be praying and focusing on God. He had prayer before he took action. So what we're going to talk about today is we're going to see Nehemiah's heart, his desire he has for God's people and what God wants to do with them. And then we're going to talk about his prayer. And we're going to look at his prayer using an acronym that some of us might know. It's using the word ACTS, A-C-T-S. which stands for Adoration, Confession, Thanksgiving, Supplication. We're going to see how his prayer kind of reflects that. And then we'll see how Nehemiah's humble prayers find a greater fulfillment in the humble prayers of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So that's where we're going. But before we do that, let's look at what our passage has to say to us. So if you want to turn your Bibles or look on the screen at Nehemiah chapter 1, Nehemiah 1, and we're going to read the chapter. It's not very long, it's just 11 verses. So I'd ask if you're here in sanctuary and you're able, I'd ask you to please stand to honor the reading of God's word and then follow along. I'm going to read our passage for today, Nehemiah 1. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Nehemiah 1, verse 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev in the 20th year, as I was in Susa the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, "'The remnant there in the province who survived the exile "'is in great trouble and shame. "'The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, "'and its gates are destroyed by fire.' And as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven." Verse 5, and I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servant's. Confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you, and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Verse 8 Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and your strong hand. Verse 11, O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today. Grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now, I was cupbearer to the king. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the immense privilege and blessing of being able to humble ourselves and cast ourselves upon you, to approach you in prayer. Lord, I pray that you would give us a heart that this man, Nehemiah, had, that you would give us a heart for your people and what you are doing in the world. I pray, God, that you would teach us to pray in a way that we adore you, that we confess our sins, that We thank you for what you have done. Remember what you have done for us. And then God, after that, may we ask you for what we need and trust you to provide. Thank you that these prayers are modeled in the person and work of your son, Jesus Christ. The one we want to see more of today. The one we want to see increase while we put ourselves below him. Lord, I pray that that you would be our focus, that you would be the one that we would honor and glorify, that you would teach us to pray, that we might communicate better with you. God, that's only possible because of what Jesus did. So it's in his name that I pray. Amen. You may be seated. So the first truth I hope you observed as we kind of read that passage was the heart that Nehemiah has for God's people. That's the first thing we're going to look at. If you have uh, the outline that was in the back or it's also available on the website, you can see Nehemiah's heart for God's people. That's kind of what we saw in the first few verses. Now, before I go further, I just need to put a little aside. I have decided that I am going to call this man by the name I've called him my whole life, which is Nehemiah. I've understand, probably a bit more technical pronunciation would be Nehemiah. I think that's more accurate. But I've said Nehemiah my whole life, so I'm going to keep doing that. And if you have a problem with that, we can talk afterwards and and work out some understanding. But Nehemiah had a heart for God's people. And that's even clear in his name. His name means Yahweh or God has comforted. His name means God has comforted. And his desire is that God would comfort his people through him. At this moment, he is far from the promised land of the rest of his people. He is instead serving in one of the royal cities, one of the capitals of the Persian Empire in Susa. It was the winter residence of the king. It was a citadel, a fortress. And he has an important role there. We saw in the very last verse that he is a cup bearer. Now we say that and in my mind I, I picture a English man in a suit holding a cup and standing next to the king with a little platform but that, that's, that's not really what a cupbearer was like in the Persian Empire. It was a, a high official, a very important rank with very close access to the king. He was more like an assistant, a trusted advisor and he had some duties related to the cup. He would taste the king's wine to make sure it had not been poisoned but that level of trust meant the king listened to him and valued what he said. It's a very established job, a high position for somebody who's not a Persian, who's an exile to attain. And we see that Nehemiah is put in the right place at the right time. And God is going to use him. In the coming weeks, we'll see how God will use him to rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. And he'll be made a governor and he'll right wrongs that are in the land of Judah. In much of the book we're looking at now, Nehemiah, is his memoirs of what he did. So let's look at what happened, though, in this chapter. In this chapter, we're told it's the month of Chislev. That's like late November, early December, late autumn. So it makes sense he's in the winter house. And he receives some special guests who have made an over 800-mile journey to where he is. It's Hanani, most likely one of his biological brothers. And some others have come to Susa from Jerusalem. And Nehemiah is concerned about his people. So he asks them, how are things going in Jerusalem? What has happened to the remnant of God's people who had left the captivity, who have come out of the exile and are back in the promised land? They wanted to rebuild Jerusalem. How is that going? And the answer he gets is, well, not good, Nehemiah. They say that they are in great trouble, distress, and misery. They are in disgrace, shame, and reproach. And why in particular? Well, they tell him that the wall of the city has been broken down and his gates have been destroyed by fire. Remember, we're talking about the ancient world. This is a serious problem. If your city didn't have gates, then it, you couldn't defend it. The nation really wasn't functioning because there was nothing to protect the people. Perhaps this is a result of something that we actually talked about a, a couple of weeks ago, when we were in Ezra chapter 4, we talked about a, a letter from the time of Nehemiah that was sent to the king, the king of the time, Artaxerxes. And if you remember, this is what he said. He said, make a decree that these men be made to cease, that the city not be rebuilt until a decree is made by me. And then when that copy of the king's letter was read before these men, Rahemam and Shimshai, the scribe and their associates, well, they went in haste to the Jews in Jerusalem and by force and power, they made them to cease rebuilding. They were building the walls, but they came and said, no, you need to stop. And it seems they tore down what they had done so far. This was a disgrace to God's people. The symbol of the country, their capital city was broken down. The walls had been knocked down. The wall was more valuable than the largest army they could have because the wall gave you more defense than one person with weapons could in those days. And the fact they didn't have a wall conveyed to the world, their God is not strong enough to save them. He can't even give them a city with a wall. It brought shame on them and shame on God's reputation. So Nehemiah recognizes this. And in verse four, he immediately responds to this with weeping, mourning, fasting, and prayer. He understands the seriousness of this situation. He is moved by it. He's personally concerned about what had happened To God's people. He empathizes with them. He sympathizes with their struggle. And this is a a theme we've seen in these books of Ezra and Nehemiah of God's leaders caring about what happens to their people. Just a couple weeks ago, we talked about Ezra responding very similar when he heard about shame and misfortune among God's people. Back in chapter nine, he said, as soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak. I pulled hair from my beard and I sat appalled. And then in the evening, he rises from fasting with his garment, his cloak torn. He falls upon his knees. He spreads out his hand to the Lord his God and prays and calls out to him. Both of these men are reminding us it's helpful for us to call out to God, to pray to him when we need him, to express mourning to him, perhaps with fasting, with not eating for a period of time so we can better pray and focus on him. As we move into Nehemiah, one of the resources I'm using is a book on leadership by a pastor named Charles, or more popularly, he's known as Chuck Swindoll. And he was talking about how Nehemiah was fasting here. He said, when our motive is right, it is amazing what we can accomplish for the Lord, with the Lord. When we occasionally save the time it would take to fix, eat, and clean up after a meal, and instead we invest it on our knees. The more responsibility we shoulder, the more time we need for contemplation before our Father. Nehemiah realizes he's a cupbearer. He's in a position where he can do something, and so he goes to prayer before God for his people in fasting. And he did this for a long time. Our, our text doesn't tell us exactly in chapter 1, but in chapter 2, verse 1, it says it's the month of Nisan, which is four months after Chislev. So he did this for four months. He spent time in prayer and fasting. Any opportunity he had, he was praying to God, calling out to him, asking God to do something for his people. And let's think about where Nehemiah is. He is 800 miles away from Jerusalem. He's not right there. He's not close to God's people. He is far away. He has his own life going on, his own concerns, but he still devotes almost every day of four months to pray for these people because that is the heart of and the care that he has for them. He's burdened for them. He's moved with compassion for his brothers and sisters in the faith. Swindoll would say, instead of looking for someone to blame, whose fault is it that the walls are knocked down? Nehemiah empathized. He reacted with compassion for his people. He didn't say, oh, I can't believe they let this happen. No, he says, God, I care for these people. Do something to help them. So he cares for the people, but he also has a heart of compassion, not only for the people, but also for God's purpose. We'll read in a little bit, Nehemiah has a deep understanding of God's word and law, and he knows that when God's people are in a right relationship with him, God builds them up. He builds their kingdom, their nation. And so he knows this is something God wants to do. He wants to establish his people. And so he prays to that end. Another pastor James Hamilton said, "If we love God and if we love the advance of His glory, well then we will feel deep sorrow when the advance of his gospel, people coming to know Him, when that is halted, we will feel deep sorrow, and we will be disciplined and diligent to fast and pray and I know for me that's that's not a response I always have when I hear that people aren't coming to know the Lord or that Brothers and sisters in the faith in in another city or in another part of the world are struggling and suffering. Fasting and prayer isn't my first response, but it should be. It was Nehemiah's. We should care more. We should be encouraged and challenged to hear about what is happening among those who also know Jesus around the world. Hamilton, Pastor Hamilton also had a very convicting question. He said, which would grieve you more, seeing your favorite team lose the championship or hearing that Christians are being persecuted in a faraway place? Now, maybe you're not a sports person, but but put something else there. Would something little that happens in your life, would that grieve you more than hearing that other people who know Christ are experiencing persecution and hardship? Friends, I I, I love you, and I, I love caring about you, knowing what's going on in your lives, but we also need to remember that we are a very small part of the great drama of what God is doing in the world. And we are very far from center stage of what God's purpose and plan is. Nehemiah knew that that's where he was. He wasn't where God was working and acting in the moment. And so he prayed for God to act on his purposes. And then in our prayer, he humbly asks. he says, God, I know you're going to do something to help these people. God, I would like to be a part of that. I think I have a role to play. I think there's something I can do to help what you are doing at this other part in the world. He asked to be a part of God's work and his purpose. So he didn't just mourn and he wasn't complaining about what happened, but he made himself available. God, if you'd like to use me to help solve this problem, I am willing to do that. I am willing to help. I wonder how often that's our response when we hear about a need, whether something going on terrible somewhere else in the world, or even if we hear about a need in our church, maybe we hear something far away, we're like, wow, that's really bad that that's happening over there. Do we take time to instead say, God, I'm really sorry to hear what's happening there. Is there something I can do to help that? Or maybe in the church, we hear, you know, the church should be doing this and this. Do we instead approach God and say, God, how can you use me to help fix this need, to address this issue here? in this church thinking on a larger scale in terms of god's kingdom we we have a global problem i you actually heard in the video i quoted it the estimate there's probably about seven billion people in the world who do not have a relationship with jesus christ at least and what are we going to do about that are we going to tell god god i'm available use me as you will to help solve this problem now, when Nehemiah heard about that problem, he didn't rush to go solve it. He's like, the walls are broken down. I know God wants to do something. Some of us, and sometimes myself, are in the mentality of these walls need rebuilt. I'm going to go there and I'm going to fix it and I'll take care of it in a day. But instead, he wanted to go with God. He wanted to do it with God's help. So instead, he goes to God in prayer. And he also didn't rush to immediate solution. He didn't go to the king right away. He's the cupbearer. He didn't go straight to him and say, King, you need to fix this now. No, he, he took four months to pray about it. He didn't post on ancient world social media. This is a terrible thing. Hashtag rebuild Jerusalem's wall. He didn't do that. No, he responded in prayer. It's very consistent with his character. He was a man of prayer. Uh, scholar Gary Smith said, Nehemiah based his service Prayer. He prays here. We'll see him pray again in chapter 4, chapter 6, chapter 13. He prays nine times in this short book of Nehemiah. And the truth is, our problems typically aren't solved unless we bring it to the Lord first in prayer. Prayer is essential if we're going to live for God, if we're going to honor Him with our lives. We may feel we're ready to go, I'm ready to go, ready to do things for God, but we should respond first with prayer. The book of Hebrews tells us we can do this. It says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy, find grace to help us in our time of need. And we can be honest with God, which whatever we need, whatever we're going through, he can handle our doubt. He can handle our fears. We can cry to him If we feel there's injustice in the world or in our life or in our nation, we can say, God, this is something that I feel you can fix. We can talk to him about it. And that's what we're going to talk about the rest of the day, how Nehemiah prayed about this issue. So we're really focusing on kind of intentional, planned. He's praying about something in particular. Next week, we're going to talk about the prayers that come in the moment, in a moment of desperation. But right now, we're talking about a planned prayer or Nehemiah's humble prayer prayer. And as we talk about it, we're going to use this acronym that many people use called ACTS, A-C-T-S. It's not a perfect fit for this passage, and I'll talk about where there's a a small issue with it when we get there, but it's very helpful to us. It's one that's familiar with some of us, and so will help us learn how we should approach God in prayer. And the first part of ACTS, A-C-T-S, is A, which is adoration. Adoration, if you want to use the blanks, adoration. And we see this in verse 5. Verse 5 says, and I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Nehemiah starts his prayer by adoring God, praising God for who he is, He knows who God is. And so he tells God, God, this is what you are like. I'm going to adore, praise you, worship you for who you are. He calls him the God of heaven. And so even though he's in grief and mourning, the walls are broken down. This God doesn't look like a very strong God, but he knows he has a relationship with the one true God, the one God that actually exists, the true God of heaven. He calls him a great and awesome God. Nehemiah knows that compared to his boss, God is everything and the king is nothing. But remember this, Nehemiah is cupbearer to the king of the most powerful empire in the world at the time. He sees every day the most powerful man that there is in the world. And still Nehemiah says, he's not all that. I'm talking to the great and awesome God when I approach him in prayer. This is a common phrase used to describe God. In the book of Deuteronomy, it's there, God's people are told, you shall not be in dread of them, of your enemies, for the Lord your God is in your midst. He is a great and awesome God. It's a phrase Nehemiah really likes. He'll come back to it in a couple chapters. Some enemies are about to attack and he looked, he arose, he said to the nobles, to the officials, to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. He's motivated by seeing God's greatness and that he is above all things. And then he praises God for some things he does in particular for his people. He praises God for keeping his covenant, his agreement, his promises with his people, and showing them steadfast love. This is the same way another Uh, author in the Old Testament, Daniel, praying around the same time, he prays to God the same thing. I I prayed to the Lord my God, I made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. That verse, Daniel 9, 4, it's almost exactly the same as the one we're reading. They're praying the same way, focusing on who God is, thanking God for keeping his promises. Because God's steadfast love is how he shows his faithfulness to his people. He keeps his promises to them. He does what he says he will do. His love is unfailing. Nehemiah had learned about God because he had read God's law and saw that God keeps his promises. The book of Deuteronomy says, Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. He is the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. Now on on the service, if we really want to step back, think about what's happening here, that doesn't look like it's true. Because in this moment, most of God's people are still in exile. Some have come back, but not all of them. And those who got back, they started to rebuild, but then the walls were knocked down and destroyed. That doesn't look like a God who's faithful in keeping his promises. But Nehemiah knows that the problem's not something God did, the problem is God's people. They had failed. Since God loved his people, he expected love and faithfulness in return. A proper response would be obeying his commandments. And that's about where he's going to go. He's going to recognize that they had failed. And so when we pray, even if we're in a situation where it doesn't seem like God's working or acting in that moment, we should instead start by adoring God, focus on on a characteristic of God, maybe his love or grace or an action, something he has done. He's provided for me in this way, or I know that he provides for my needs. And we should start prayer there, adoring God for who he is. Then we can move to the C in Acts, which is confession. We've adored God and now we confess our sins. That's what he's talking about, the confession of sin. This is what Nehemiah does in verses six and seven, if you want to look at the text. It says, Nehemiah praying, says, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you, says, even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you. We have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. So Nehemiah asked God to be attentive, to listen to his prayer, but then he turns to confessing his sin and confessing his people's sins. And I hope you see here the reason why we looked at Ezra and Nehemiah together, because we're seeing the same type of themes pop up in these books. Just like when we were back in Ezra in chapter 9, Nehemiah doesn't criticize the people for their failures, what they're doing wrong, but he confesses everyone's sins, including his own. If you remember back in Ezra, that Ezra saw that there was sin among God's people, and even though he did nothing wrong, he still said, Oh my God, I am ashamed, I blush to lift my face to you, my God. For our iniquities, our sins have risen higher than our heads. Our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. So just like Ezra, Nehemiah sees there's a problem among God's people of sin. But he doesn't say, for shame, you all fix that. No, instead he says, I'm going to identify with my people. I'm going to count myself as one of them. He's going to model what he sees in the Psalms, like in Psalm 106, where it says, both we And our fathers have sinned. We have committed iniquity. We have done wickedness. Nehemiah is recognizing that sin is a serious problem. It's what's keeping God's people from God, using them for what he wants to do with them. And Nehemiah knows that God can bring forgiveness to anyone. Nothing that we're saying here is that trying to downplay that God is a God who brings forgiveness, but we still need to take sin seriously. When we do something that's against what God has said, that is a serious thing, not something to be lightly brushed aside. Sometimes we jump too quickly to talking about God offers forgiveness and grace. We need to recognize the only reason why God can forgive us is because Jesus died for our sin. Our sin, even the one that seems small and need to us, that was something Jesus died. He paid for. We talked about nothing but the blood of Jesus we sang earlier today. It was nothing but his blood that means that we can be right with God. Nehemiah knows that the sin is serious. He needs to confess it to God. He doesn't make excuses, but he accepts his responsibility and he accepts the responsibility of all of his people. He admits that they have acted corruptly, wickedly, and terribly. They had offended God. They had not obeyed his commandments, statutes, rules, laws, decrees, ordinances, regulations, whatever your translation or you want to call them, they hadn't done it. They had broken God's word. They had not done what God said that he wanted. And so they'd been appropriately judged for it. Nehemiah knew, as the book of Deuteronomy says, if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. So it's important in prayer that we recognize God, this is an area where I failed you and I want to ask you for something, some help, but I need to recognize that I have failed you in this way first. So before we ask for what we desire, we should spend time confessing sin, the sin that separates us from God and needs Christ's atonement to bring us in a right relationship with him. So we adore God, we confess sin. The T in Acts is for thanksgiving, thanksgiving. Now, this is the one that's a little bit of a stretch compared to Nehemiah 1. Again, I use this acronym because it's helpful. It's easy to remember. He doesn't explicitly say, thank you, God, for doing this. But what he does do is he calls on God to remember his promises. He's saying, God, remember this promise you've made for God's people. I suppose I could have called it, instead of thanksgiving, called remembering what God has said. But then that would be ACRS, which I guess acres I could have used as an acronym. But Acts is just one we're a little more familiar with. So I put the T there. But I also feel that in these verses, which we're about to read, you'll see there's a hint of gratefulness there. Nehemiah is grateful that God has said these things. So let's read verses 8 through 10 again. He says, Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples, but if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them, bring them to the place I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. So yes, he doesn't say thank you for this, but he's saying, God, remember these things you've said, these good promises of your word. And God gave these promises, which gives Nehemiah reason to hope. He prays it from a thankful heart. He knew that he could rely on what God's word said. He's calling on God to do what he promised to do. And what God promised is that he would bring a curse on sin, but he also promised that his people would have restoration. They'd be restored to God and to their land if they repented and turned away from that sin. This type of remembering is, is similar to other places in the Old Testament. Again, the book of Deuteronomy says, remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So do not regard the stubbornness of this people or the wickedness of their sin. And God saying, Nehemiah is saying the same thing to God. He's saying, God, remember what you've said to your people. I know that we have sinned against you, but you said that if we return to you, you will be with us and restore us to the land. He's asking God, remember your word, your instruction. God, you have fulfilled the curse in the law. God did what he said. He said that he would scatter them among the peoples. That if they disobeyed, they would be removed, sent into exile. As he said in the, in the law itself, in Leviticus 26, God said, I will scatter you among the nations. I will unsheath the sword after you. Your land shall be a desolation. Your cities shall be a waste. And that's what happened. They were removed from the land. Their cities were torn down. It's still happening when Nehemiah is praying. He just heard the wall is broken down. The city is a waste. But Nehemiah is also saying, but God, you promised something else too. You promised that if your people returned, if they kept your word, if they obeyed it, if they did your commandments, what you said, then they would be restored. If your people started to live for your word, our text says that then whether they were in the uttermost, the most remote parts of heaven or the furthest horizon on the ends of the earth, God would bring them back to the promised land. The verse we just read was Leviticus 26:33, but a couple of verses later God says, "But if they confess their iniquity, the iniquity of their fathers, in their treachery they committed against me and in walking contrary to me, then I will remember my covenant, my agreement with Jacob. I will remember my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham, and I will remember the land." or the book of Deuteronomy will put it this way, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you. He will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. This is a message of hope that we see throughout scripture, Old Testament and new. God's people always have a way to get back to him in a right relationship with him. While we are here, if you are here in this building, even if you are watching online, then you are alive. You have breath. You have hope of knowing God's grace. You are alive, so you are not too far gone yet. Let me ask you, have you come back to God? Have you come to know him, recognize my sin has separated me from God and I need to know him? You can You can by turning from sin and putting your faith in Jesus Christ. You can be restored to God. Nehemiah knew that that truth was true for his people. And he realized that the second part of God's promise was unfulfilled. God had scattered them, but he had not brought them back. The land was not secure. Without a wall, there was no way to defend themselves. There was no way to have a place where God's name could dwell and be recognized. He says, after all, the Israelites are God's servants. They're the people that he rescued from slavery in Egypt. He redeemed, he purchased them out of slavery, not with money, but by his power, his strength, his strong and mighty hand. Again, the book of Deuteronomy says, they are your people and your heritage whom you brought out, brought out of slavery by your great power and by your outstretched arm. So by telling God to remember this. He's also kind of thanking God for what he has done and what he has promised. It gives Nehemiah confidence as he's getting to the end of his prayer. He knows the God who saved his people from Egypt, the God who promised he would send his people into exile, but also bring them back, that God he can trust. He can trust that God to answer his request, to give him what he needs, to be sovereign over this king he needs to address. And that's why this part of prayer is helpful for us. We adore God, praise Him for who He is. We confess, God, but we've fallen short. We've sinned in these ways. And then we remember, but God, you have promised us forgiveness. You've promised us that you will be with us. You've promised us so many things. Praise God for Him. Remind Him. It's not that He's forgotten, but you're reminding yourself of who God is. And then, finally, We're in a frame of mind where we can ask God for what we need. Or the S in acts is supplication. It's just a fancy word for asking, but again, acta, A-C-T-A, doesn't really work. So they put an S, so supplication, asking God. Let's read verse 11. Nehemiah ends his prayer. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success To your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man because he was a cupbearer to the king. Finally, Nehemiah gets to his request. He asks God to be attentive, to listen to his prayer and to the prayer of others who delight to fear and revere God's name, the people who delight in honoring God. They take joy in viewing God as God as worshiping him, praising him for who he is. That's what we're doing in prayer when we adore him. We're saying, God, you are great. I view you as who you are, not who I want you to be. This is a very different way from thinking about how prayer is often assumed. Prayer is assumed to be, you can talk to somebody in the sky who will answer you or, or may or may not answer you. And that's not it at all. It's we're in relationship with God. We're addressing him as God who we know who's so much greater than us. We adore him for who he is. We confess that we are not like him at all, but we are so thankful for what he has done for us. And then we can ask him for what we need. It's communication with the one true God. It's a little bit also of an acknowledgement of reality, which is that while we have a perfect relationship with God, things on earth are, are not always perfect. And the reality is that Nehemiah and the Israelites, they're servants of God. They worship him, but they're also under the Persian empire. They have other authorities to answer to. And if they're going to rebuild the walls of the city, they need permission from the government to do that. They can't just do it on their own or else the army would come and stop them. And so here we are at the main request All of this, all these verses are Nehemiah building to this one point. Give success to your servant today. Grant him mercy in the sight of this man. He's asking God for success in speaking to the Persian king, King Artaxerxes, that he'll receive mercy and favor in the king's sight. He humbly asks, God, will you allow me to prosper, succeed in convincing the king to help our people, to be kind to God's people? He's looking for the success and the prosperity, not, a, not of money or wealth, but of God acting in his life. This is the type of thing that the psalmist was talking about. The exact same word in Psalm 1:3 says about someone who knows God's word that he is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season. Its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. That's the same thing here. Nehemiah knows, I know God's word. So God, I'm asking you to help me to prosper in this thing that I am doing for you. Nehemiah is not trusting in a person. He's not trusting in himself. He's trusting in God to act over this Persian king. He knows that God can influence this king to do whatever God wants. And it's funny, he doesn't even put his name in the prayer. The last words of the prayer are grant him, grant me mercy in the sight of this man. He's just a man. He's the most powerful man in the world. He has more power, can do more things than like a president can now, but he's saying just a man. But God, give me mercy in this man's sight. You, God, are in control. He trusted God to open the king's Heart. and remember this is a really big request because if what we a passage we read earlier is true if this is the same Artaxerxes who sent a letter he just sent a letter saying you have to stop you can't build this anymore it was probably only a couple months since he sent that or maybe a year or two so he said don't build this city and Nehemiah saying God help me to convince him to change his mind about this but as we already seen in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah God is in the business of changing the minds of those who are in authority. We read in chapter 6 that God's people kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with joy because the Lord had made them joyful and because the Lord had turned the heart of the king of Assyria to them so that he aided them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. Even though this king had been doing the exact opposite thing, Nehemiah is at that point that he can ask and say, God, I know he's been doing the opposite thing, but please help me to prosper in convincing him to do what is best for your people. And that's the final note in the text is Nehemiah is a cupbearer. God has already put him in a position where he can have influence, that he's already prepared for this work. So that's our passage, but, but what about us? Well, We also have a relationship with God. There's nothing different between Nehemiah and us. We can make requests of God too. You can ask God for what you need in your life. In fact, God is pleased to work through his people's prayers. Sometimes God doesn't do something until his people pray about it, and then he does it. I can't tell you why. It's the way God does it. He is pleased to work through our prayers. He's pleased when we depend on him, and then he acts. He loves to have that type of relationship with us. He wants us to ask him for what we need. Do you realize if you're a Christian that part of the reason why God saved you is that so you could pray to him and that he could answer your prayers? And if you don't believe me, we read this verse earlier, John 15, 16. Jesus talking here said, you did not choose me, I chose you. I appointed you that we should go and bear fruit. We should live for God, that your fruit should abide. We should continue in it so that whatever you ask the father in my name, he may give you. Part of why God saved us, brought us into relationship with him is so that we would pray. We would call out to him, say, God, this is something I need to live for you. And that God would respond to that. Jesus chose us so that we would bear fruit and pray. He saved us to pray. A book I talk about a lot is a little short devotional called A Gospel Primer by a man named Milton Vincent. And he writes about this. He says, as a chosen one of God, I was saved to pray. Whenever I come into God's presence to behold him, worship him, or make a request of him, I am arriving at the pinnacle of God's saving purposes for me. I think sometimes we And I'm talking to myself here. I'm not, it's not a chrism. This is addressing me. I undervalue prayer. I think prayer is something, you know, I need to set aside time each day to talk to God about what's going on in my life. And I forget that one of the reasons why God saved me was so that I would pray, that I would talk to him and that he would act. Friends, you can ask God for what you need. Now, that verse of John, that doesn't mean that, God, I really need a fancy yacht. that's, That's not what it's talking about, but it's talking about, God, this is something I need to serve you today. We can ask him for that. But the way we should do it is by following the example of Nehemiah and the example we talked about, using perhaps the acronym ACTS or something similar, adoring God, confessing sin, thanking him for who he is and what he has promised, and then asking for what we need. And we looked a lot at Nehemiah, but you know, there's, there's someone else who we can look at to see a model of this type of humble prayer. And that's somebody that I, I hope you know and know well, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Christ would pray with the same type of humility that Nehemiah showed. His prayers are very similar. There's only one major difference between the way Christ prays and the way Nehemiah prays. Christ doesn't confess sin because he didn't have to, because he was perfect. He's fully man like us, but he was also fully God. He did not sin, so he didn't have to confess sin. But other than that, he says a lot of similar things. He humbly knows that he is heard by God when he prays, and he's thankful for it. When he's raising Lazarus from the grave in John 11, he says, Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you have sent me. Christ asked God for things. He humbly asked God. And he also shows us that sometimes we don't get from God the thing we need, but he accepts God's answer. In the Garden of Gethsemane in Luke 22, Jesus prays, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup of suffering from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And in Jesus' case, God told him no to that request, and Jesus had to go to the cross to die for us. But he prayed, he said, God, I really don't want to suffer this way, but I'm willing to accept your, your response, your control. And then, on, did you know that Jesus humbly prayed for us? He did it several times, but he particularly prayed for us in our sin. Luke 23, Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And yes, he was talking about the people who particularly put him up on the cross. But the truth is that we are all sinners who have fallen short of God. So that prayer is for you and for me too. Because our sin, our rebellion against God is why Jesus died. Before we were born, almost 2,000 years before we were born, Jesus prayed for us and said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He prayed for us because he loves us. And we can have a relationship with him. And I pray that you do. And if you don't, I pray that you'll talk to someone about how you can turn away from sin and you can have a relationship with God. But once you have a relationship with him, it's not that we stop growing or nothing changes. We should ask ourselves, do we have a heart for God's people like Nehemiah does, that he mourns fast and prays for them? Like Jesus does praying for his people. Do we have that type of heart for what God is doing in the world? Do we pray like Jesus, like Nehemiah? Do we adore God for who he is? Since we sin, do we confess our sin? Do we thank God for the promises he has given us? Remember what he has said that he will do for us. Do we ask God for what we need? We should pray that way because our God alone is worthy of that kind of prayer.